right, kiddos, it's the last Sunday of the month, so that means you get to come up and help me. So sixth grade and under, can you come up and help me? Come hither, please, Caden. I see that. Dor or Jack, Jojo, Mabel. All right, and these sparkly girls right here. Oh my goodness. I have no boys. I need some boys up in here. Lane, Lane's companion, come forth. All right, come on. Come on over here. Okay. Can you turn around and face me? Okay, so I'm going to need your help today. So, um, do you know what season it is? It is a multitude of seasons. It's volleyball season, it's soccer season, and it's football, it's football season. Woohoo, right? Now, have you ever been to a football game? Yes. Now, did the guys run out there in, like, shorts and a T-shirt? No. no. What do they wear? Tell me one thing. Football pads. Okay, go grab a piece. Go grab a piece, everybody. Jojo, you pick a piece. Grab a piece. All right. Pretty sure they're clean, but no promises. No promises on that. Yeah, bring it out. Bring it out. And show us what you got. All right. All right, Mabel, put them on. What do you have? Some. Oh, there we go. Oh, shoulder pads. Fantastic. You got some? Oh, yes. I'm not going to have you put these on, but do you know what these are? Now, what's inside of these pants? Do you feel that? What is that? Padding, like a hip bone pad and a quad pad? Is that a thing? Is that a thing? Okay. Pot, there's a pad there. Yeah, there you go. Now, what do you have? Jersey, and that keeps all the goods in, right? All of the stuff. Now, what do you have, Josephine? Shoes. Shoes. Uh, what's on the bottom of those shoes? What are those pokey things? What's that pokey stuff? You know? Yeah, they're cleats that keep so you can run really fast. Now, Lane, now what do you have? Helmet. Helmet. Now, let me see. I think we might. Let's see. Try it on. You want to try it on? No, put the It'll mess up your hair. Is this a thing? No, no. Oh, I don't know if it's going to fit, man. Oh, Here, try it again. No. no. Huh, huh. Okay, we're going to give up. I don't want to cause damage here. But what else? And what is this thing? Do you know? Nothing. Now, why do you need all of this stuff to play football? Why? For protection, right? And what else? Like if you didn't have, well, because if you get hit in the face, you don't want to break your teeth. It's expensive. Yeah. Um, what? Why do you need? Why do you need shoes with special grippies on them? Why? So he can run faster with the ball. So you need him for protection, but you also need it to do the job at hand, right? So you can get the job done. Now here's my question: um, Does this equipment? Say your coach gave you all the things you needed, every single little bit, even this cool mouthpiece and this little chin strap and the whole thing. And he gave it all to you, and you put it on the floor in your room and in a nice musty pile, and then you went off to the game. Would your equipment be able to help you then? Why not? You wouldn't have it. He's like, that's a stupid question. Uh, you have to put it on, right? And if you don't put it on, can it do the job? No, it just lays on the floor. Your mom or your dad or your coach could buy you the nicest equipment ever. But if you don't put it on, is it going to do any good? No. No way. Now, today, we are going to talk about some equipment as well. Not football equipment, but the armor of God and importance of putting that on. Not only for, to protect us, but also to help us get the job done, to be faithful Jesus followers. Okay? Now, uh, raise your hand. Do uh, you guys all have your coloring sheets in your activity pack? Did you get one? Okay, if not, Jackson, can you wave it in the air? As you go back to your mommy and daddy's, go grab a paper from Mr. Jackson, and you'll have a coloring activity page, okay? I already have one. Great. That's great. All right, go sit down. Thank you so much for your help, guys. Good job. Good job. Awesome. Very fun. 
Now, as you sure you figured out already, we are talking about the armor of God today. The very one of the very last sections in Ephesians. We've been there all summer long, and today we're going to be at chapter six starting in verse 10, talking about the armor of God. And even people who don't know the story of the Bible very well at all usually are familiar with this metaphor of the armor of God. Now, when my little brother, uh, he's about four years younger than me, he was like three or so, uh, somebody gave him a playset that was the armor of God. Did anyone ever have this? Anyone have this? Yes, yes. It came with the, uh, the helmet, of salvation, right? The breastplate of righteousness came with a shield. It came with shin guards, which is actually not in the biblical text. So I don't really know what happened there. Uh, and the sword of the spirit, of course. And he would run around the house in all his gear, no, usually no pants. And he would run around in his outfit and he would say, he goes, I'm going to sword you. And I believed him and I ran away in terror, right? So um, let me be clear. Uh, Jack will never have this particular toy, and if you buy it for him, I will defriend you because he is not to be trusted with sword-like objects. He found a dowel rod the other day, and Jojo literally fled the room in terror because she should, right? So the armor of God is a captivating metaphor, so captivating we've turned it into children's toys to help bring it to life. Now, this section of uh, Scripture this little 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 tidbit comes at the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in fact, it starts out by saying, finally, like maybe in all, maybe it's even getting lengthy for Paul. I don't know. But he says, finally, in light of all the stuff we've talked about in these earlier chapters of Ephesians, finally, in light of what we've talked about, of God's work to redeem creation, of, of Jesus tearing down the dividing walls. Do you remember Pastor Tommy talking about that? tearing down the walls that divide us from one another, bringing peace. And in light of this call to persist in a relationship with each other, even when it's really hard, because there is one body and one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. In light of all of that, here's what I want you to do. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So let's read this passage together. Uh, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of the blood and flesh, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. Stand therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, and put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet. Put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. And with all of these, take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Now, having swam around in this book all summer and having wrestled with this text, this battle-esque imagery is kind of shocking because we have talked so much about peace, haven't we? Tearing down the dividing wall and reconciliation and forgiveness and just lots of peace talk, frankly. And here comes Paul busting down the door with this war language. 
But as the text makes clear, the conflict that we're talking about is not battling with other people, not within the church or even with people outside the church, but rather Paul says the fight is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against what? Against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and this present darkness against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, this is not comfortable language for our modern ears to hear, right? It feels like archaic and kind of creepy and even a little paranoid. Now, when I was a teen, I think I was like 13, uh, someone loaned me the book, This Present Darkness. Has anyone read this book? Thank you. And are you not terrified by the photo? Okay. Um, Let me be clear. No 13-year-old should ever read this book. Okay. Thank you. Uh, But the whole premise of this book, it focuses in on the story of a church, a church that had a deep, deep conflict. And these two groups within it were warring against each other. And so the chapters kind of go back and forth between these two um, kind of competing parties, you might say, within the church. But intermixed with these chapters, telling the story, inserts the author inserts chapters that are told from the perspective of the demons, the evil spirits that are working on behalf of the enemy of Satan. And it weaves together what is happening in the realm of earth with what is happening in the realm of the spirits, how the demons are influencing people to disobey God, okay? Now, certain people are more susceptible to the voice of the enemy depending on the depth and the width of their relationship with Jesus. And once again, let me say, 13-year-old should not read this book because it will give you really bad dreams, right? Because it is a scary, unsettling idea, right? Now, this isn't a new thing. C.S. Lewis, an author from a long time ago, he did something very similar, trying to um, imagine this interaction between the realm of earth and the realm of heaven. He wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. Now, this is an exchange of letters between two demons, okay? The chief demon, Screwtape, is trying to educate and um, kind of mentor uh, Wormwood, another demon, okay? So he writes letters to Wormwood and says, hey, if you really want to get them to give in to temptation, this is what you need to do. And Wormwood's like, well, I don't know. They've been reading the scripture lately. He's like, burn it down. And he tells them all these ways to influence uh, people, right, to help them um, disobey God. And some parts of it are really funny because you're like, oh, that is absurd. And other parts you're like, Oh, my word, that is true, right? And so some folks are really, really captivated by this stuff, like the interaction of the spirits in this world and the heavenly realms, but to an unhealthy degree, okay? Imagining demons behind every corner. They're set out to trip you like a 14-year-old bully, right? And they attribute every setback, every hindrance, every sickness down to a cold to the work of Satan. Okay, that's one perspective. Now, most of us look on that view as eh, with a little bit of skepticism, right? Some of us maybe even with some disdain because we're modern folks here, okay? All right? We are informed, critical thinking, educated people, and we recognize that what some people in the past have called demon possession was probably epilepsy or maybe it was mental illness. Now, we're more than willing to acknowledge Yeah, there's evil in the world and darkness and chaos because people make bad choices. But this whole spiritual warfare thing, like the little devil in a red suit on my shoulder, trying to tempt me to do evil things, it's 
kind of a stretch of the imagination, right? Of our secular minds. Absurd even. Like, we're beyond that. Now, about these two differing views, the unhealthy obsession with the spirits, and then this kind of like eh, casual disbelief. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and will hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now, I am not here today to convince you there are demons lurking behind every bush, that your flat tire is Satan's deliberate attack on your day. You probably just drove over a nail, okay? But nor am I here to convince you that the powers of evil and darkness aren't at work in the world because they absolutely are. Now, I'm not just talking about evil like sins, like I made a bad choice yesterday, I snapped at my kids. I say that's sins like lowercase s, okay? I'm talking about sin, like capital S, like the power of darkness that is actively working against God and God's purposes, okay? The chaos in creation, both naturally and in our relationships, that is sin. That is the powers of darkness. When we see systems, broken systems that perpetuate sinful patterns like racism or discrimination, that is sin and the power of darkness. When we see broken power dynamics between women and men, that is still sin and broken uh, relationships with the power of darkness. And the thing is, is that these things, these powers of darkness, they're not like advertising themselves, hey, in the power of darkness, let me in. Right? No. They come to us innocuous, seemingly innocent, devotions that begin to steal our first love our loyalty to Jesus. Instead, it replaces or maybe kind of bullies over our devotion to Jesus with devotion to a political party or perhaps a devotion to a certain lifestyle or devotion to economic status or devotion to what someone's, to our rights. Now, these seemingly innocent and amoral, not really moral, good or bad things, slide on in and they take root in our hearts. Now, that is sin, big S, the powers of darkness at work in and among us. And I want us to take that seriously. Paul sure does. But time out for a second, though. Because Pastor Stephanie, you are the one who is always preaching ad nauseum, maybe, about how the kingdom of God is breaking into this world here and now. And we are God's people. The kingdom is on the loose. And so we, God's people, are enacting that kingdom. And here you are talking about the powers of darkness. How are we supposed to reconcile these two things? That the kingdom of God is breaking in through Jesus' death and resurrection, that the enemy has been dealt the death blow. We know this. So how do I reconcile that with the reality of sin and darkness that are so present in our world? How do I live in that tension? I had a professor one time. I was really struggling with this idea of Christ is king and he's broken into creation. And yet I look around and I see so much brokenness and sin and darkness. And he gave me this illustration. I might have told you before. You can just pretend I haven't and just be, ah, that's so interesting, even if you've heard it before. Okay. Yes. In Christ's death, 
and resurrection, the powers of sin and death have been dealt a death blow, okay? There's no coming back from that blow. The kingdom of God is coming. It is breaking in, and one day it will come in its fullness. The war has been decided, but the battle is not done. The powers of sin and darkness, of darkness and chaos, are kind of like a chicken with its head cut off, all right? The chicken has lost its head. It will never bounce back from that, okay? But in the meantime, as it is in the death throes, it's going to make one big mess, is it not? In the same way, through the death and resurrection of Christ, the chicken has been beheaded. Sin and death, we know they're going to lose. But in the death throes, as evil and the powers of darkness are still at work, they're going to make a real mess of things. But one day, that chicken's going to run out of juice and fall down, right? You can't bounce back from that. And so we are in this in-between space where we know that Christ has conquered and yet the battle is still raging as we await that ultimate victory. And so we live in this in-between space. Now, if you don't believe that chickens actually do run around with their heads cut off, I Googled it. They totally do. And it's really disturbing. I confirmed it before I used it as an illustration. It's a thing. So we just imagine sin and death running around like crazy, making a mess of things. Now, here's another illustration. Think back for a second to D-Day. Now, most of us weren't actually alive when that actually happened. Some of us were. But uh, we know, as historians will tell us, that was probably one of, if not the most decisive victories in World War II. That all-in, completely aggressive, a coordinated attack on Germany's defenses in France. Now, there were countless battles that led up to D-Day, and there were battles after. But after that decisive moment on D-Day, they couldn't bounce back, right? The enemy could not bounce back. And so the war was not over. There were battles still to be won. But the decision had been made, had it not? Even though we still had a ways to go, we knew that in that moment, it had been decided. Victory was assured. And so in the same way, we are living in that tension between D-Day and V-Day, okay? We are living between the beheading of the chicken and the death of the chicken. We are living in this place where we know the war has been won, but in the meantime, the powers of evil are going to go out with a bang. And we live in the midst of that tension. The powers of sin and darkness, of chaos and disorder have been dealt a death blow. The war is won, but the battle continues until the day of victory arrives. And so it's for this reason that Paul gives us this passage with the command to be strong, to put on the armor of God as you live in this in-between space, as the battle rages, put on the armor of God. Because for Paul, the battle is assumed. The only question, it's not whether or not there's going to be a battle. The question is, will you be prepared or not? And so how do we prepare? How do we protect ourselves in the midst of this struggle against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of this present darkness and these spiritual forces of evil? Well, enter the armor of God, the tools graciously provided for us by God to protect and enable us to participate in kingdom work here and now. So let's look at what this this armor actually is. We have the belt of truth. Now, a Roman soldier's belt was not just to keep his pants up. 
namely because he did not wear pants, okay? So rather the belt held the weapon and had strips of leather that protected them. And without that, he was very exposed and vulnerable to attack. And in the same way, Paul describes our belt as the belt of truth. And what is the truth that we know? The truth that we know is that God is both creator and redeemer. He created every nook and cranny from top to bottom, inside and out, and he is the God who has promised to set it right, to bring it back from death and destruction, from chaos and disorder. And he's already begun the work in Jesus through the cross and the empty tomb. The chicken is headless, and we trust he will carry it to completion. And so we wrap that truth around us to protect us from the lie that somehow we're the boss. That belt protects us. He puts on next is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the breastplate obviously was key because it guarded the vital organs, right? The heart and the lungs and the torso. And without it, the soldiers were very easy targets for blows like arrows. And so Paul describes this piece as the breastplate of righteousness. Now, That is like a mega churchy word, righteousness, that sometimes loses its punch from overexposure, right? Now, God's righteousness is his commitment to saving justice. And not justice like we define it like you'll get what's coming to you kind of justice, but rather justice as in restorative healing, redemption, setting things right and calling them by their right names, God's righteousness is God's commitment to put right and to call all of creation forward into this healed new space. And so we bind this promise around our hearts to protect us from the despair and the hopelessness of a world that is an act of rebellion. We bind the breastplate of righteousness around us to protect our core, to allow it to mold us and shape us into people who trust and obey, who believe and act for justice. The breastplate of righteousness. But then he also said, put on the shoes, whatever shoes will get you to proclaim the gospel of peace. Now, a fellow preacher, not a personal friend, but another preacher Um, was talking about this particular element of the armor really captivated him because his son was autistic. He was a nonverbal autistic child. And so every day it was really, really important that his son knew exactly what was on the schedule so his day could function, okay? He had to know what we're going to do at 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 all day long, okay? And so every day when this preacher, this dad, would come down the stairs, his son would immediately look at his shoes, And he knew whatever shoes he was wearing meant that's the kind of day we're going to have. If he was wearing dress shoes, it meant church. If he was wearing, like, green, dirty old tennis shoes, it was yard work day. If he was wearing flip-flops, it was a day off. Let's go to the beach. And those shoes determined where they were headed, okay? Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Our feet determine our direction. Which direction are our feet pointed? Where are we headed Paul says, your feet are to be pointed towards peace. And like I've said about 587 times in here, I'm not talking about like, oh, I have peace in my heart. I feel calm and at ease. No, I'm talking about peace like reconciliation. Restored relationships between you and God and you and everybody else. 
And Paul is saying, are you wearing shoes that are going to get you to that place of right, restored relationships with people for Paul from every race, every ethnicity, male, female, rich, poor, young and old, all brought together in Christ through forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, Paul says, slip on those penny loafers of peace. Or if you're, you know, somebody can go put on their pumps of peace. Whatever you are wearing, he does not care what kind of shoe as long as it is pointing towards peace. If we are not pointed towards peace, we are not living in the fullness of God's gospel call towards reconciliation. So the shoes of peace. Next is the shield of faith. Now, there were, I looked up, looked this up. And there's all kinds of shields that the Romans used, but there was one in particular that was one of their main ones, and it was huge. It was like three and a half feet tall by like three feet wide, and it kind of arced like this, and they had their arms in it, and they could, you know, and block the arrows that were coming at them from the bad guy. Now, the interesting thing is that Paul uses this imagery to help us imagine the attacks of the enemy, like blazing arrows, because a lot of times the arrows were blazing. Imagine having that come at you. Blazing arrows coming at you, okay? And uh, he imagines these arrows as aimed right at our core, aimed right at um, our heart. The doubt, arrows of doubt, arrows of fear, arrows of disbelief coming out. You're like, does God really have my best interest in mind? Is God really trustworthy? Did God really say you could have no fruit from any tree? You see? This is an enemy weapon from the beginning of time calling us to doubt God's heart for us. And they come like shooting arrows aimed at us. And Paul is saying, you better throw that shield of faith up. Block those flaming arrows. And remember, faith, the shield of faith is trusting obedience. And that is what will protect us. We obey by holding it up and we trust that God will do what God says he will do. Amen? That is the shield of faith when the arrows of doubt and and fear come raging at us. We have the shield of faith to protect us. Next, we have the helmet of salvation. Now, one of of Jack's current favorite activities, my two-year-old, is um, he likes to go and take everybody's bike helmet and try them all on like he's at like a department store and then he buckles it and he goes about his business wearing that helmet for the rest of the day and I don't even care because most of the time he's in some kind of mortal danger and so I'm like great wear a helmet save me some time and maybe money so anyway he runs around with his helmet protecting his little dome and it's so great because our heads are so important They're the hub of our nervous system, right? Our brain is protected in this fragile shell of bone. Like, whose idea was that? Your entire body could be in full working order. But if your brain is out of whack, you aren't going anywhere. So, too, salvation is the cornerstone of our being. God's saving action in the world is the lifeblood of creation. Salvation is this bold declaration that God has acted to save us. Isn't that wild? And that reality is the crux of this whole thing called life. And so without it, without salvation, we are a lost cause. We are helmetless on a football field with the O-line coming at us. And last, we have the sword of the Spirit. Now, if you notice, every other piece of equipment so far has been a defensive weapon, right? This is the only offensive weapon that Paul talks about. He says, we are 
to uh, hold up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, how many of you as your kids or teens in church did sword drills? Remember sword drills? I'm getting a big no here. Oh, no, I see a, a, ooh, a, a resentful head nod. Okay, All right, I see that. Uh, sword drills were when you had to have competitions to see who could look up scripture verse like, find First John 3.10 now. You're like, and whoever found it first was like the most Christian person, right? And I, I always beat this kid, let me just tell you. So they call them sword drills because we talk about the Bible as the sword of the spirit. Now, to be clear, Paul was not talking about the Bible like we know it, okay? Because A, it wasn't all written yet, and B, it wasn't even compiled into a book yet. So he wasn't talking about the Bible per se, but he was talking about the word of God, the story of God's gospel message of God come down to redeem creation through the embodied word of Jesus. It is with this weapon, the sword of the spirit, of a God who made himself weak, and vulnerable, even unto death, with which we do battle. Seems kind of paradoxical, doesn't it? A God who would come down and be vulnerable and give his life away, that is our weapon? Yes, to live into that call of giving ourselves for the sake of the world, that is our weapon. The armor of God. It is a fabulous gift and what sheer mercy to provide for us exactly what we need to stand firm in the midst of evil and chaos and sin. But like our football equipment this morning, it is not going to do us any good if it is on the floor in our bedroom. To be effective, the armor must be worn. You got to put it on. Now, it is this divine dance between God's gracious provision, providing what we need, and at the same time, our proactive obedience. You see, God's provision, our obedience. God has laid out the armor, and we must put it on. Strap on the belt of truth. Don that breastplate of righteousness. Lace up those shoes that guide you towards peace. Hold up the shield of faith. Buckle on the helmet of salvation and hold tightly to the sword of the spirit that is the word of God, immersing yourself in the story of God and his saving action until it sinks into your bones. And you can't help but live like every word was the truest thing you ever heard. We are geared up in God's armor. We are well equipped to practice resurrection to live into our calling, to be agents of love and reconciliation, to stand firm against the lies of the enemy and to reject false narratives that are screaming for our devotion. And the good news, and oh, Ephesians always reminds us of this, is we don't do it alone, do we? Every single verb was plural. He says, y'all better hold up that shield. Y'all better put on that helmet. It says y'all in the Greek. It's just not very classy in the English. But he says, you do it together. This is group work. Now, Roman soldiers, you know why they were so effective? It's because when they were attacked by the enemy, they didn't like scatter all willy-nilly. They gathered together and they linked their shields together. The Spartans did this too. They linked it together and they made this like impenetrable like shell, kind of like turtley looking. And they just waited. See, look at that. And it was almost impenetrable. And they waited until the enemy had kind of like arrowed themselves out. And when they were done, they emerged as a team and they took action, right? They, uh, only 
when they were together, were they effective? When they were independent, they were strong for a while. But when they were together, united like that, they were almost unstoppable. And so too, Paul is saying, guys, this isn't, this isn't a single project. This is group work. You've been called together into the body. We are in this together, beloved. That is how God has designed it to be, standing firm together with the Lord against the wiles of the enemy. It is God's gracious provision providing what we need and our proactive obedience. God gives us what we need and then we put it on together as a body. We put it on, we keep it on so we can practice the resurrection life. Amen and amen. Now we have the privilege today as we do every month to receive the sacrament of communion. And this is such a fitting way to end our time in Ephesians together today. To come to this table, we who are the body of Christ, the dwelling place of God, to receive God's salvation this small element that calls to mind the sacrifice of Jesus and calls us to join him in that sacrificial path. So we are thankful, we are humbled, and we respond to this call empowered by mercy. So pastors, would you come and band, would you come? Hear this word of the Lord. Uh, And I would remind you that we come to the front to receive or one in the back as well. All of the bread is gluten-free, so you can participate from any station, okay? We are reminded that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father God, we thank you that you have given us exactly what we need to live in faithfulness to you. Thank you for your gracious provision. And may we respond with our proactive obedience, putting on the armor of God that you have so generously provided for us. And may we walk forward into this world and stand firm. Stand firm against the powers of darkness because we know the victory is assured. So would you empower us to live as citizens of that coming kingdom here and now? In Jesus' name, amen. Eugene Peterson says, he says, The church is the gift of a community of Christians in which we rehearse and we orient ourselves in the practice of the resurrection. That is my prayer for us, that over these past few weeks and months, that we would be shaped by this idea that we practice the resurrection, that we live into God's promise of setting all things right, and that we will truly be a sample, a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. Amen. Would you stand to receive the benediction this morning? Oh, beloved, Christ Church, would you respond today to God's gracious provision with your proactive obedience? Don the armor of God and walk forward with courage into a world in need of you. Go in action and go in peace. Amen and amen. You are dismissed.